baseball is back, and so are your favorite teams and players. Catch the best of the bigs all season on ESPN Plus with over 170 live MLB games featuring every star and every team in the league. Sign up now at ESPNPlus.com slash baseball. Plus, check out the Adam Schefter podcast. Not only does Schefter bring you top-notch info and big-name NFL guests, this week he chats with Mina Kimes about the devious April Fool's Day prank he played on her. You can also find the Mina Kimes Show wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. My name is Joan Neeson and I have a dilemma. I just moved into a very small house with my boyfriend and we do not know where to put all of our stuff. I sold my condo in Chicago, which was a typical, you know, like West Town, like two bedroom condo and moved to DC where everything is old and teeny tiny. So it's also a two bedroom house. It's just everything is shrunken. Okay, so this is the opposite of the usual conundrum. You buy a big house and you need to go shopping to fill all the big rooms. Uh, But in this case, it would appear that editing is key, but also patience. So one of the most important things I learned when my husband and I bought a house was the urge to buy and design and decorate And it was so strong and so immediate that I made some early decisions that later didn't make as much sense for how we actually live in the house. So if you could be a little bit patient and let a little time pass to see how you inhabit the rooms, where you might want a side table or where a lamp would make sense, which furniture feels like home and necessary and which stuff feels superfluous and not a fit for the space, that is the way to approach this. And when in doubt, condo it out. Something brings you joy, try to make it work. And if it doesn't work, You got a great excuse to go shopping and pick up the perfect pieces for the space. Just be patient about it. That's what she said. So this week's guest is journalist Joan Neeson, host of the new seven-part Religion of Sports slash PRX production called Crushed. It's a podcast about the 98 Maguire-Sosa home run battle, the steroid era of baseball, and more importantly, what it means to be a kid who idolizes a player and a team only to discover that they've done wrong. And in Neeson's case, it's Maguire and her favorite team, the Cardinals. Now, I know what you're thinking, a Cardinals fan, but don't worry. It didn't take long at all in the interview before she said this. I wish I'd been a Cubs fan. Yes, that's right. She's she's come to her senses. She understands. She understands the error of her ways, but we can't control who we root for and where we were born. It's a very interesting podcast. Only one episode has been released yet, but I'm already much more into it than I thought it would be. It's not just a rehashing of the steroid scandal and the home run chase, but more about the nuances and the gray areas of something that we've so often discussed the same way over and over. Neeson spent six years at SI, currently does some freelance writing for The Guardian and occasionally updates her Substack newsletter. Uh, You can hear episodes of the podcast, a new one every Thursday. Episode one came out last week. Hope you enjoy the interview. That's what she said. So when I was first pitched a podcast about Mark McGuire and the home run derby and the general vibe of those that 98 craziness, um, I wasn't super pumped because I just saw 30 for 30. I'm not a Cardinals fan. Sammy Sosa and the Cubs got the raw end of the deal despite being a part of the excitement. And then I listened to the trailer for Crushed, the podcast. And then I listened to the first episode and I realized that today's guest, Joan, and I have a lot in common. 
because your Mark McGuire Cardinals experience at the age of 10 was very similar to my Michael Jordan Bulls experience over the course of late junior high and high school. Uh, The obsession, the way that it affected my future job and what I do for a living, the connection that I felt, um, and that part of your life and part of your age that can make it a lot easier for everything to be innocent. And um, unfortunately for you, uh, the innocence didn't last as long (laughs) as mine. So let's go back before we even get to the podcast and give people an idea of who you were growing up um, and what else you were into before you were struck with McGuire fever. You know, I don't even remember what I was into before I fell in love with baseball. Like, I don't even think I was like a fully formed person. Um, I always like to read. So that's probably the other thing that like made me a sports writer, reading Mark McGuire all comes together. That was about the extent of it. Yeah, I was 10. And like, like you said, it's such a formative age where you can just look at anything wide eyed and totally immerse yourself in it. And I think it was a little weird how much I liked Mark McGuire in baseball, but I was also young enough to not care how weird it was. So in episode one, you talk about you and your brother racing each other to grab the box scores in the paper. It wasn't like you could go on the internet and then you would take out a glue stick and glue in the scores and keep a record while other girls were, you know, putting up Leonardo DiCaprio or whoever else it was at that, at that point. I feel like it's been Leo for a long time. He really had a a nice, nice, long, long tenure as people's wall material, despite his age. Um, So To what do you attribute that? Who was the first person to sit you down to watch baseball? It was my dad. And um, my dad is actually interviewed in the podcast. It's his big break. Um, And he loves baseball. Um, His mother was a huge baseball fan, introduced it to him. And he just, it was never explicit. My dad is not a your typical sports fan. Like he doesn't own a pair of jeans. He wears like the same like pleated front khakis and polo shirt every day. He's very buttoned up, but he always had baseball on TV at our house, on the radio, in the car. I remember being a little kid listening on the radio in the car and it was just sort of like the soundtrack to summer. Yeah. I love that it was your grandma who was really into baseball. I I especially love stories of women that are multiple generations before us that were just kind of like, screw it. This is what I like. Um, I remember meeting a woman in her late nineties at my aunt's house who had been on the, the, the train cars with the Cardinals traveling with the team back in the day because of the family connection that they had. And, you know, we talked for an hour or so about sports and everything else. And, uh, at the very end, she also turned out to be very good friends with Jackie Onassis. And I was like, oh, OK, well, so your life is a book and I should probably <laughs> be writing this down. But it was it was such a random thing to have a woman in her late 90s sit down next to me. Oh, sports. Well, I'm a big Steelers fan. I'm not sure about Big Ben. And I'm like, what? What's going on here? So tell me more about this grandma. So I actually never met her. She passed away when my dad was very young and um, has always been sort of someone I've been really curious about her life. I think just that absence has always made me curious. Um, she grew up in rural Missouri um, in a town that was like barely even a town. And I guess she probably listened to the Cardinals on the radio a bit. And also she had a bunch of, she had a brother and a bunch of uncles who were all very into baseball. And my dad said she had a good arm. He said she threw the ball pretty hard. Um <laughs> taught him and his brother to play catch and like push them into baseball. She unfortunately passed away when he was eight years old. So didn't get to really, you know, meet me obviously or see him grow up, but her presence from what I understand, she was, she graduated high school at 16 was the youngest woman to ever get a nursing degree in the state of Missouri. She was a go-getter and she also loved baseball. And so 
yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have given anything to be able to talk to her about all of this. But um, what I learned about her just through reporting the podcast was so cool. Yeah, that is cool. And I love um, the fact that, um, you know, despite passing away when he was so young, obviously had such a formative effect on on him and an impression on him in terms of the sport. So it's not that surprising, I guess, that you would have a similar uh, reaction to his handing it down to you. Um, was there ever a moment? Did does does the family ever go back and talk about a moment where you resisted or you were into other things? Or does it feel like this natural, always part of your life? It really feels like it was always part of my life. Um, I, I think, you know, when I got into high school and I got older, I wasn't probably paying as close of attention. Um, I was a pretty typical, you know, teenage girl and was doing other things besides watching baseball sometimes, but still went to games with my friends. And I remember watching the 2004 World Series while dressed as a crayon at a Halloween dance. Um, so yeah, baseball was always, always part of my life. Um, and I, it, it's St. Louis. So like, I mean, it's similar to Chicago where like, it, it's normal to be really into this stuff. They're such good sports cities and, you know, people just, everybody wants to talk about it all the time. So you uh, go from that high school girl who's maybe focused on some other things, um, but find your way back to sports. Talk about sort of w- where did you end up at college and what did you study? Yeah, not sports or journalism or anything along those lines. Um, I have a roundabout way to this industry. I went to Georgetown um, because I liked the West Wing. And, um, I, I think, I think that is the reason I went to college there and, um, got an economics degree and figured out with about a year left in college that I thought I wanted to be a journalist. So I immediately went to graduate school at Missouri and I thought I was going to be a business journalist because I had this econ degree and I studied a lot and I felt like I should use it and, um, got to Mizzou and very quickly started writing about sports and kept writing about sports and just sort of kind of fell into it that way. Never took a single minute to write about business or economics or anything like that. So wasted degree, I guess. How much of that do you think was uh, based on where you ended up at school and Mizzou being obviously a great journalism school, but a a big sports place? Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. Um, We had at the time... um, a great sports editor who is a professional, the the editors at Mizzou, basically they go out and work in the field of journalism. They come back to kind of be a professor slash editor. And they, there's a great sports editor there who I'm sure part of the reason he was interested in even going there was the sports programs. And yeah, I loved working with him and got to go cover some amazing, I mostly covered football, some, you know, amazing football games and have some really cool experiences that I'm sure I wouldn't have had, had I gone to, had I just left Georgetown wanting to be a journalist, probably. Right. Although basketball. Have you met Mina Kimes? Because she might be the only other person who went from, well, she actually pursued and acted as an economics and, um, you know, business journalist before sports, but not that different from you. Yeah, I haven't met Mina, but I know we have a lot of friends in common and have been fascinated by her path as well. (laughs) Right, right. She gets to have people who used to tell her to, uh, you know, uh, stick to business and now it's stick to sports and in either way she she can do both. (laughs) So you you get into the sports journalism thing, and and it sounds like um, based on your your childhood love, and you know obviously very smart if you're at at Georgetown and Mizzou, you probably hadn't run up against too many barriers in life, at least in terms of what you want to do and pursuing it. Was there any fear when you made that pivot? Because it wasn't something you had dreamed of, so you probably hadn't gotten lectures from people or even support from people saying, listen, this is going to be tough. People are going to make it hard on you. Push through. You all of a sudden make this pivot. And was there a concern about all the stereotypes about women in sports? You know, I didn't think about it a ton. I was probably pretty naive about it. Um, 
I was working around mostly men when I was in graduate school. The sports department was just at the time, I think it's, I think it's gotten more diverse since then, but at the time it was mostly, mostly men. And, um, just kind of dove in, you know, I think it's it's funny, the person who maybe had the most of like a think about this before you do it was my dad, who is hmm. super supportive of me and obviously loves sports. I think when I told him I had to turn down a Bloomberg internship to cover the football team at Mizzou. And that was sort of like my pivot point of like this business stuff isn't happening. And he just said, think about what you're doing and make sure you really love it. And this is going to be a change for you. And he's one of the, he is probably the most supportive person in my life, but he definitely had those words of wisdom that I probably should have thought more about. I don't think it would have deterred me, but um, I did not do a lot of thinking about the fact that I was stepping into an industry that is, as we both know, um, there aren't a lot of people like us in it. Right. Can be hostile at times. Uh, so your first major gig uh, as you exit grad school is where? So I worked at Fox Sports when they had, they kind of had a model similar to what The Athletic has been doing in recent years, where they staffed up local sites with beat writers and had them write featurey stuff. Um, and they just didn't quite do it as successfully as The Athletic. So eventually those jobs went away after I had departed. But um, I covered the Minnesota Timberwolves for Fox Sports. Got it. Okay, great. So were you wanting and thinking that you would stay around the Minnesota area? No, I was very cold um, and I did not know many people. So that was sort of a, a great job opportunity, great editor, um, had a lot of people speak very highly of the position. So moved there without really knowing anyone and um, wanted to be warm pretty quickly, I would say. And so I was only there for two seasons. And so is that when you moved to newspapers? So yeah, I went to the Denver Post after that, um, covered the Broncos. A little warmer, still still. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Had some friends there, a um, little bit better, I would say, social situation for me in Denver. Um, and covering the NFL comparatively to the NBA is just, I mean, I, I remember starting and being like, I, I have 16 games I have to cover. <laughs> it was like, what? Not 82? So. Yeah, that's a nice difference. So working alongside Woody Page? Yes, Woody Woody was there and Woody was a great advocate um, at my time. I was not at the post long. Um, I was only there for a season, unfortunately. I would have stayed but Sports Illustrated um, was hiring and reached out to me. So in my time there, Woody was um, a wonderful friend. Yeah, good good advocate. A little quirky sometimes on TV, but nice guy. <laughs> yeah. um, so SI comes calling, and what's their role for you, and why was it so appealing? Uh, staff writer job um, appealing, I think, for that reason. Um, I, you know, they wanted me to come in, and at the time, I was going to keep covering the NFL and write features and you know, go to the Super Bowl every year and do all the fun things that come with these jobs. And I had interned at SI when I was in grad school. So I knew I knew the people there. I knew the office, the situation. They also said I could live wherever I wanted. So it was it was a dream gig. And uh, so, yeah, I went there after one football season at the Denver Post, which is not something I would generally recommend doing in the hiring process for young journalists. <laughs> Stick around places. Now, I read a story about you covering Darius Geis and saying that that was one of the moments in your career that there was genuine fear. Uh, can you take us back to that story and just a little bit uh, um, to set up some of the work that you've done before this podcast, um, which had you known probably now what you knew then uh, would have been digging even deeper on that story, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I um I wrote about that this summer. Um, and I, I have the Substack newsletter that is somewhat dormant right now due to the very podcast we're here to discuss. Um, but 
this summer when Nancy Armour and Jessica Luther and Kenny Jacoby at USA Today wrote the p- big piece about Darius Geist, the allegations against him during his time at LSU. Um, I had told some friends over the years about something that had happened to me in, I, I believe, 2017 when I went down to LSU to write a feature about Darius Geis and being sort of a, a local guy who decided to stay home at LSU despite having faced a fair amount of family tragedy in the Baton Rouge area. Um, his his brother and his father, um, his brother had committed a crime. His father had died very young, a lot, a lot of tragedy in his past. And so I went down there thinking everything was sort of good to go. And um, before I went down there, I as I do when I report most features, I usually put out a few feelers to set up some other interviews in addition to just the player and his teammates who the school was going to give me. And this was particularly easy one because he's from Baton Rouge. So his high school coach, everybody is right there down the road. So I sent out some emails to a few people, went and talked to his high school coach, basically the first person I talked to when I got into town, went out to campus and Darius didn't show up for our interview. And I said, okay, well, I can come back tomorrow. It's fine. My brother lives in New Orleans. I can stay as long as I need to. I drove back to my brother's house, you know, planned to come out the next day. And the next morning I got a threatening text message from a Baton Rouge number I didn't know. And um, it turns out it was Darius who was threatening me for having reached out to people in his life um, Mm. for doing my job, essentially. And uh, it was, I wasn't initially very it didn't, it went over my head at first. I was like, this is weird. I should call the SID. I should figure out what's going wrong. And my brother who I was staying with was like, Joan, people can't threaten you over text message. Like you can't go out there until you figure out what's going on. So long story short, nobody really ever did anything about it. Um, I never got him on that trip because they couldn't promise me that he would come and they couldn't promise me that it would be handled. And, um, I wrote sort of a surface story where my editor and I like sort of alluded to what happened and we really should have done something much bigger. But at the time we had no idea. Um, Obviously this information was super um, covered up by the school and buried and we didn't come across it in our, you know, research that we were doing. And then the story comes out three years later, four years, three years later, I guess, about a lot of allegations of some really problematic behavior. Yeah, that's such a tough situation because the threats from the source themselves, particularly when you haven't unearthed anything yet, right? So it's not like you're saying, listen, I'm not going to be dissuaded by this. This is a story I need to get to. There wasn't a story there yet. You were trying to see if there was one. Um, So you want to keep pursuing it, but you also wonder, and I'm sure at the time, despite him being threatening, he he seemed more sympathetic, right? Because of the everything had been around him and hadn't been actually done by him. So you don't know right. yet that maybe he's protecting himself versus his family and friends. Exactly. Um, you know, I'd, I'd only heard good things about him, which is a huge problem in this industry because the people who you go to talk to usually for stories, you know, the first round of interviews at least tend to be people who are going to say positive things. And then you begin to dig deeper as you go down the reporting chain. Um, but yeah, to me, he was a somewhat sympathetic character, a guy who'd been through a lot, which he has been through a lot. Um, that's not an excuse, but he had been. Right. And, um, you know, it's something where in retrospect, looking back, it all makes sense. It's like the school's reaction, which was kind of a non-reaction, and they kind of circled the wagons, makes sense because mm-hmm. the school, per the timeline, already knew about some of these allegations at the time. Okay. So like knowing now sort of who knew what that summer, it all makes sense. But at the time, it kind of made no sense whatsoever. Right. You're like, oh, I want to go back and get that story because now I look back and there's so much meat on the bone. 
We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what's your favorite word? Onomatopoeia. Onomatopoeia, like uh, buzz or fizz or hiss. Uh, this is from the 1570s, from late Latin, the formation of words or names by imitation of natural sounds or the naming of something by a reproduction of the sound made by it or associated with it. Um, it ultimately traces back to the Greek, which is anima for name and pian also the root for words like poem, which means to make. So making a name, uh, oftentimes of the sound. Uh, I often get that wrong, uh, like when it's actually applicable to a word, but I love to say onomatopoeia, and I love to say onomatopoeic. Speaking of great words. You gonna learn today. The word of the week is nepenthe. This is from the 1570s. It's actually mentioned in the Odyssey. A drug or magic potion capable of banishing grief or trouble from the mind. Why is this the word of the week? Well, here it is in a sentence. Today, I received dose one of the Moderna vaccine. A veritable nepenthe after a rough COVID-affected year. Thank you, science. Thank you, scientists. I've never been so grateful to be stabbed in the arm and feeling mildly tired. Thank you. Now let's get back to the interview. Your time at SI uh, came to a close uh, how long ago? In October of 2019, um, after the sale to um, the Maven slash Authentic Brands, I think that's what they're called, um, went through. There have been a couple of rounds of layoffs since then, but this was the initial layoff right after the sale, um, was laid off then and joined the world of unemployed journalists, which led right. me to this podcast. <laughs> right. I was going to say, so six years there, and that's one of those jobs that people don't really anticipate leaving unless there's a really good reason to. Um, but with some of the purchases of media brands and companies, unfortunately, there has been, um, a lot of journalists out in the world looking for new places to, uh, hawk their stories. How long did it take for this podcast idea to come to you? And how did you get um, tied into the religion of sports people? Yeah, so kind of a complicated answer. So it was really gratifying after I got laid off. I heard from a lot of people with a lot of, you know, very kind offers for projects and let's talk. And it was, you know, in some ways very fortuitous that it happened before the pandemic. Um, I think it would have been a far more difficult process. My next, the next round of big layoffs at SI happens like week three of the pandemic. Like that would have mm. been much worse. Um, so I'm very, in a way, grateful to have gotten laid off when I did. Religion of Sports was also, in speaking of fortuitous, they were kind of starting this audio department at the time. And they, they had some ideas. They had a guy who was in charge of sort of talent acquisition and figuring out where they wanted to go with things. And then there was this mass layoff and um, Adam, Adam Schlossman, who was, who's sort of responsible for bringing me on board, reached out to me along with Ben Baskin and Tim Rowan, who were also laid off with me and um, said, do you guys want to talk about this? And we had some conversations over the course of last late fall, um, beginning of the winter. And in the process, it was sort of a, I'm interested, let's think of ideas. I think they wanted sort of me and Ben and Tim to come in with an idea if we were going to come on board. But for me, actually, Adam very early on was like, I have an idea. It's kind of the beginning of an idea. I want to do something about the steroid era and how it led to these congressional hearings that really kind of took down baseball. And I know you're a baseball fan. I know you're a Cardinals fan. You know, is that something that you would want to be taken run with? And I said, if you'll let me put my own spin on it, like I would love to. 
So I actually did not come up with this idea. <laughs> um, found you. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it was, um, it's probably not something I would have pitched because I think that I would have thought, you know, maybe there isn't as much resonance to today for this story. Um, I think Adam was right that there is a lot of resonance to today. And as soon as I started sort of thinking about it critically, I was like, this might be a really cool time to do this. Um, and I'm too stuck in the present or like an anniversary or having some, you know, weird hook that like, there are, all this, there are a lot of thematic hooks here. So started working on it last January of 2020. Wow. Okay. So not a bad project to be digging into during a pandemic because so much of it can be done via Zoom and interview and and really just digging into the, to the research. Um, the Religion of Sports group uh, was founded by Gotham Chopra, Michael Strahan, and Tom Brady. Uh, are those the guys that actually sign your checks and hop on the conference calls with you to discuss things? Just you and Tom just tossing around ideas? <laughs> that would be really something, wouldn't it be? Um, so Gotham is extremely involved on the editorial side in terms of you know, green lighting projects. And I think religion of sports likes to, I mean, there's always a new idea going and Gotham is very instrumental to all of that. Um, Michael and Tom, I think play a more background role. I have not met them or corresponded with them. Um, but I think it's sort of, you know, their vision of sports and why people love sports really informs the company's, um, vision, but yeah, Gotham is the only one I've met. Um, he's, <laughs> he's great. <laughs> Um, okay, so you start digging into this, and and I mentioned to you before we started the interview that I loved that there was a trailer up because it did sort of paint a picture of everything that goes into this pod beyond just remembering what it was like when when Sosa and McGuire were chasing, and you know when the steroid era was this focus. Um, and even just in the trailer, I heard some quotes from people that made me frustrated. Um, whoever the voice was that said, in sports, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying, is one of my least favorite phrases in the history of ever. Um, and somebody else who said, there's nothing immoral about getting advantage over your opponents. That's what athletes do. Okay, so is this setting me up to like have some people within this podcast that are absolutely going to claim that he did nothing wrong? I don't know if we have anyone who's going to claim they did nothing wrong. I think we have some really interesting perspectives from people who think about steroids from, from a place that the sort of, I guess, mainstream media and just general public hasn't often thought about it. Um, the voice that says, if you're not cheating, you're not trying, is actually someone who was in the Giants. Um, he's a Giants trainer, a former Giants trainer. And he was sort of saying that from a third party position, having been really involved in baseball for a long time. And he is not the only person who said that to us. Um, it's a pretty sort of common refrain mm. that I think, I think is really interesting because, you know, you think about, you think about steroids and that's, you're, you're injecting yourself with something and you're, you're making a very conscious choice to like do something, you know, is going to change your body. And people are very uncomfortable with that. But then you go down the spectrum. We have a whole episode on this, actually, episode four, about sort of the spectrum of cheating, especially in baseball. Guys who rub a little dirt on the ball. And, like, that's technically not allowed. But also, baseball doesn't really ever penalize anyone for that. Um, guys have admitted to throwing a spitball and gotten into the Hall of Fame. Um, so there is this really interesting spectrum, I think. And we have one guy who's talked to us, a retired player, who said, you know, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. Everyone says that. But to everyone that word cheating means something different. And a lot of people just apply that to rubbing dirt on the ball, but some people applied it to taking steroids. Yeah. Um, I love the analogy that comes in the trailer and the first episode of, um, you know, watching this home run chase and watching uh, 
everything that went on feels like when you watch it later, watching wedding footage after knowing that your spouse has cheated on you. It just changes everything, but you also retain all the emotions and feelings you had in the moment. And for you, as a 10-year-old, before anything came out about McGuire, before the locker was uh, conspicuously, and we'll get to that later, uh, left wide open uh, for his secret to be discovered, um, what kind of emotions did this summer create for you, especially at that age? I mean, I think it was just like sheer excitement. Um, I feel like I was at this perfect age where I, I'd seen exciting things before in the past, I'm sure. You know, I was 10 years old. But something about this was like, to me, there was so much on the line for not only for McGuire and the Cardinals, but it was a St. Louis thing too. And like, if you've ever met anyone from St. Louis, like the most like ridiculously prideful people of the place they're from, even though we all like move away. Like I've lived there since I was 18. But like, you insult St. Louis, I will come for you. Um, and I think that was even kind of being sewn back then. of just like, you're from a smaller city that's, you know, gets some bad headlines. And, but you see sort of the soul of the place and you want the world to see it. And I think, I mean, I couldn't have articulated that at age 10, but I was, you know, just being in St. Louis that summer was so cool. Everyone was on the edge of their seat. And for me, that's what it was. It was just like a nail biter. Um, I think I was, you're not very rational at that age. And there's a, there's a point if you look at the numbers where like McGuire was going to have the most home runs at a certain point in September. So, so it was just like a tick too far behind, but like, I never believed that I was like, he could get this taken from it any second. Like I have yeah. to watch every inning. What could happen? I was watching Cubs games, one WGN. Like I was, yeah. Tracking the opposition as well. I love that. Um, <laughs> so I know you said, you know, the, the pitch gets sent to you and you say you want to make it your own. So what does make this different and your own versus another retelling of McGuire Sosa and the steroids scandal? Yeah, I think for me, the thing that I was most interested in is the fact that we tend to discuss the steroid era and the home run race kind of as one. And we discuss the stars. We discuss McGuire and Sosa and Barry Bonds and you know, some of the guys who testified in front of Congress, Jose Canseco. Um, and think about what percentage those guys are made up of the guys playing Major League Baseball from, say, 1990 to 2005. It's a microscopic percentage. And from the start, I've been very interested in what this was like for the player who no one really owns their jersey, who you only know their name because you're a huge fan of Team X, um, or even the minor leaguer who never makes it. Like, what about the guys who were kind of playing baseball to make a living? And how did this change sort of their lives? And I think the podcast, it's my favorite thing about it, that we go there. And, you know, part of that curiosity, I think, was rooted in the fact that I knew it would be very difficult to get. Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa to talk to me for this. These guys notoriously do not talk about this subject. And so I knew that, but I also thought it, we've heard from them in certain kind of canned PR type ways. I want to hear from somebody unfiltered. And that's the spin that I think I put on it. Um, in addition to a little bit of myth busting, I would say about things we think about steroids and how they work that maybe aren't quite true. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that it feels like gets uh, played out. And again, this uh, first episode is the only one that has aired. Episode two will hit uh, Thursday after this podcast drops, um, was some of the questions for McGuire himself. Of course, these have been addressed before, but you tease it out in a way that feels a little bit more emotional than previous coverage, where it's you're taking other people's jobs when you cheat. How do you sleep at night knowing that you're doing this? 
do you always have to wonder what you could have done if you hadn't cheated? And that's the one that stuck with me as a former athlete is the idea of, of course, taking steroids isn't going to make you see the ball. Isn't going to make you have a good swing. Isn't going to make you a smart player. Isn't going to make you work hard. Isn't going to make you lift weights and do sprints and keep up with the rest of the, you know, the league, but it helps. And whatever amount it helps cannot be decided scientifically. So you will always have to wonder for yourself, what did I do? And what did the steroids do? And that to me would be such a haunting thing, no matter the money and fame that you got because of this. But I guess for some people, the whole point is if you can get the money and fame, then you're like, ah, I mean, whatever. <laughs> yes. I, I think that's a big part of it. And I think a lot of these guys really delude themselves about the effects of steroids. When McGuire had his televised confession in 2010 that he kind of had to do in order to get the Cardinals hitting coach job, he talked about how he thinks he would have broken the record without steroids. And to me, that is just like, I, I don't believe that is true. Um, I just, that feels like something you have to tell yourself to sleep at night. And um, I wish I could ask him about that. He has not wanted to chat with me. So, you know, that is that is that. But um, I actually talked for one of the episodes to a guy who is basically a behavioral economic ec economist, I think. Um, he's a business professor and he is very, he studies sort of self-delusion and cheating. And he told me a lot about how people are incentivized to cheat and how basically you cheat once and then you think you forget that you cheated and you mentally just think that's how good I am. And then after that, you keep cheating because that cheating is only making you as good as you think you are. And so there's a lot of self-delusion that goes into this that I think sort of helps guys from doing what you just described and really regretting this and spending their lives right. tied up in knots. Yeah. Well, and then you get into the Ryan Braun or Lance Armstrong, where you're so bought into your own lie and you, you now require everybody else to facilitate it. So when people step outside of it and try to condemn you or point fingers or have evidence, now you're not only cheating, but you also have to essentially try to ruin other people's lives and names because of, because if they're at all credible, then you're taken down. Um, and so you see that sort of spin out of control in the ways of, you know, blaming people's team allegiances or any anything else uh, for why they might be lying about you. Uh, do you get into the idea of at all trying to track or understand the benefits of steroids and numerically or in any sort of way that can be measured? We do a bit. Unfortunately, there's not a lot there scientifically. Um, one of the things that we explore when we're in that same sort of conversation is just the fact that because steroids are illegal. Like you, it's not only that baseball bans these things and other sports <laughs> bans them, it's that they're illegal. Um, there isn't data. And some doctors actually think that steroids, they're classified along with like some super addictive um, drugs of abuse, like oxycodone, things like that, that steroids aren't like the American Medical Association disagreed with the way that steroids were categorized and they're categorized that way. And there are some doctors out there who think steroids should be able to be prescribed by doctors in responsible amounts and whether that would be allowed in sports or not, who's to say, but just generally speaking. And if that happened, we would be able to study some of the effect. Mm -hmm. But because that's never happened, there's no like large enough sample size to do any kind of study of negative consequences of steroids. So any of the negative health effects that are out there and also the positive physical consequences of, you know, guy X hit X amount of home runs, then he did steroids. We can anecdotally look at that. Um, Ken Caminiti was the AL MVP or the excuse me, NL MVP. And 
he hit 40 home runs that season, went on steroids because he fast, and previously he'd only hit 26 ever. So that's something, but it's a really small sample size. Right. And so, you, have, you don't have a control there because, you know, the pitching changes and the game situation. And yeah, all we really have, I guess, is like Sylvester Stallone. And that's too small <laughs> of a sample uh, for someone right. who just is it's just HGH is going to be our sample size. One of the things you talk about, which is often discussed in conversation around the steroid era, is just the place that that MLB was in because of the strike in 94, because fans had become disillusioned with the product, because the fighting about money is something that turns people away no matter which side they're on, how much they needed something. And I do think that anytime we can get lost in the best of sports narratives, um, it really, it, it, it feels like something we want so badly, it's too hard to reject it, even if the evidence points us to otherwise. And that happens very often, too, when we find out that our sports heroes might have committed a crime, right? Oh, I don't want this thing that's happy for me and that I associate with goodness and celebration and bringing people together to be foiled by anything, whether that's a crime or steroids or otherwise. And so you hear some of these voices, including uh, the one, I think, radio host who said he went on the air and he was so enamored, almost infatuated with what McGuire was doing that he announced that if he had a sister, he'd like to introduce him. And he had two sisters. And so he forgot his sisters existed and suddenly was whoring them out to Mark McGuire uh, because right. he was so in love with what was going on. And it didn't even phase me as someone in sports. I was like, yeah, that checks out. We've all been there. <laughs> totally. Um I, that was one of my favorite moments of the first of the first episode. Um, that was like the piece of tape that I was like, it has to be in here. Um, it's it's you're, you hear that kind of stuff all the time. You you you're so blinded by it, and you're so in love with what's what's going on. And like you said, I think a lot of people were looking for that from baseball at the time. They want if you were a baseball fan, I think in the late '90s, which I mean, I was as a ten year old. I don't really remember the strike, but from what I understand, it was <laughs> like I love this sport, and it's been failing me. And it's, you know, the strike, there was no World Series and everybody's greedy. And then you get Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa and you just want to believe. And I I get that. Right. And even the relationship between the two of them made it easier to root for it versus had one of one of them hated the other or had they been nasty to each other, then maybe people start digging more into either one of them. But they were sort of simpatico alongside each other in this competition, which changes the whole tenor of it. Totally. They were these foils for one another. And I mean, Sammy Sosa was so much more fun than Mark McGuire. Like in <laughs> retrospect, I'm like, I wish I'd been a Cubs fan. Um, <laughs> he was so fun to watch and uh, just was comfortable in the spotlight in a way McGuire wasn't. And I talked to a few people for the podcast who who talked a little bit about that and how even just Sammy Sosa's presence helped Mark McGuire because it humanized him. He could be sort of the calmer mm-hmm. sort of foil and that made people like him more. And if he had just been kind of sitting there himself, he, he was pretty uncomfortable in the spotlight and generally quite boring, I would say. And I don't know that it would have gone as well for him had Sammy Sosa not been there doing his thing. By the way, I'm definitely clipping off you saying I wish I was a Cubs fan and putting it somewhere <laughs> out of context early on just to set the stage <laughs> for you being a wise person who knows the error of your ways. Um, it is true though that there was that was the other part that I being a Cubs fan and being decidedly never enamored with Mark McGuire in that moment or ever the people saying well you know he was just such a hunk and the ladies loved him I'm like what what's going on here it did feel like this person who wasn't necessarily built for the spotlight in terms of personality or looks or excitement 
um, made the most of it by being strong and hitting balls far. And that was it. Totally. Totally. I mean, yeah, some of the, some of the stuff about like the women love and it's just like, I was sort of, unaw- I mean, I guess it makes sense. Like he, like you said, he's this big, strong guy hitting balls really far and everyone's really into baseball. Like I was 10 and I just thought he was like really cool, which also misguided. I don't think like I, he was, he was just a guy. Um, he didn't <laughs> want the attention. I, right. yeah. But it's, it's very interesting how we project this stuff onto these people oh, and okay. um, turn them into something that they're potentially not and have no interest in being. Particularly in sports, because there is this incredible, you know, there's this achievement that goes along with whatever greatness we we already would give them for being rich and famous, right? That we don't treat uh, even musicians who accomplish great things or or actors quite the same way because there aren't stakes every time with with sports. It's this incredibly chiseled fit you know, Adonis-like person who, if you're a woman, maybe, or a man, you might be interested sexually, but you also might just want to be them. They're very aspirational for you. Um, And then at every single turn, there's a new set of stakes put in front of them that they defy the odds on. And so that sets up for you this incredible narrative that's the stuff out of storybooks that you don't have when someone plays a song you love or acts in a movie that you like. And so that also corrupts us in terms of our view of them as being inherently good. We make them into idols and heroes because we associate their talent with being a good character. And that gets so caught up that that's why it takes us so long to sometimes see otherwise. Totally. And I think I think one of the first things you learn when you get into, you know, when you do what you and I do is that you have to separate these people. They are athletes. They are not role models. And um, it's great if one happens to be, but that's like, it's just not what they are. And you know, in doing the reporting for the podcast, I had a few people who were much more kind of clinical thinkers who were like, these are like morality and athletic talent are not the same thing. And that'll <laughs> yeah. be a discussion at a certain point. Um, but then there are some people I talked to who are really, really smart people. I talked to someone who's a pretty high up political operative um, who was involved in getting the steroid hearings to Congress. I mean, just a brilliant man. And he was like, I cannot separate morality from sports. Like if my team is not a does not have good character. I cannot cheer for it. And I didn't say this to him in the interview, but it's like, good luck finding mm-hmm. some like a team to root for where you're not going to have some kind of problem. Yeah. And that's just sad, but true. That's an interesting element of this too, because my obsession with Michael Jordan, uh, first of all, remains. Um, <laughs> and the flaws for Jordan are more vague and abstract. It's the accusations of cheating on his wife, which it's sports. I, 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 I often tell people when they ask me about an athlete I've worked with, oh, it was he a nice guy. I always say when I, whatever I say after this is ignoring anything relating to whether or not they might've cheated on their wife. And I know people are going to push back on that, but I'm telling you from experience that that, and I'm not also excusing it. I'm simply saying that someone who has had great interactions with me and is always kind and helpful and and smart and whatever, I might say they're a nice guy. And then you'll be like, I found out later. I'll be like, yeah, that checks out. Like, <laughs> I'm not surprised, right? A man is only as faithful as his options and perhaps women too. But in my experience, as far as uh, I think that's Chris Rock who said that. Um, so with Jordan, it was, it was, much later in life that you start to say, okay, well there's, you know, he gambled maybe too much. And then there's the stuff with his wife or whatever. Um, But I can still look at the athletic achievements as this pristine example of 
the greatest thing you can be and all the work and competitiveness and drive that gets you there. And it influenced me as an athlete. It helped me become a sports writer, all of these things. Yours was like up and down in such a quick amount of time. You didn't get the years and years and years to build that mythology. So take me through, especially at 10, the bubble bursting. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I want to say I'm so jealous with the Michael Jordan thing. I mean, like I, every, all my friends who grew up in Chicago, I'm just like, you had a perfect experience growing up with this. Um, Here we go again. I feel for you. I do. I know I can tell because you moved to Chicago later. You just, you, yeah. you wanted it to be that. And I, I get it. I get it. <laughs> Funny. Um, no, in terms of, I don't know if the bubble ever burst is the thing. Um, you know, I was certainly not, you know, intelligent enough to sort of look at McGuire back then and say, look at this guy, of course he's on steroids, which I think my dad was doing, frankly. Um, I, it's in retrospect, he's like, yeah, like, I don't know. He's like, I liked Lou Brock and Bob Gibson, like this, this guy, whatever. And so then, you know, it all kind of recedes to the background for a while. McGuire retires in 2001. Um, and I don't remember thinking a lot of Mark, about Mark McGuire after that, honestly, because the Cardinals got so good. And there was Albert Pujols and, you know, Jim Edmonds, Scott Rowland, these like stacked teams. And I was really into baseball. And so I feel like I just kind of like moved on to Albert Pujols, which like, it's not a bad problem to have. Yeah. And, um, and then it was sort of a gradual thing as I got older and the steroid hearings happened when McGuire sat in front of Congress and just sort of fled the fifth and uh, didn't come off looking particularly good. I would say, and I, I remember, you know, reading about that. I didn't watch them live or anything and thinking, mm, I don't love that. And it really wasn't until he came back as the Cardinals hitting coach that I was like, this is weird. Like, I don't know that this guy deserves to be the hitting coach of the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, and it is what it is. I remember I went to opening day that year and I remember looking down and just being like, he's like riding in in a convertible with Clydesdales everywhere. And I'm like, really? But then they like won't retire his number. It's like such a weird relationship. And right. I, I think that's when I started feeling just a little like, what am I supposed to do with all of these feelings? Um, it can't it be a delayed a, reaction. Yeah. If it can't be an unconditional embrace, then it feels like what, why does this feel weird? And I have to dig into that some more, which is of course what's happened to Asosa and the Cubs for years. And I think the Cubs have been incredibly hypocritical in the way they've handled it and, 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 and not thoughtful in, in the way they've talked about it either. Um, so what did you discover over the course of doing this podcast? And what do you expect people who listen to it uh, will take away most? You know, I think the biggest takeaway for me from the reporting is just that steroids are a much more complicated issue than I ever realized. And that I think, you know, we've talked a little bit about, like, about morality and just these guys being good people, bad people. And I don't know if taking, st I think it's, it's, I think there's this black and white, like if you take steroids, you're a bad person. And I, I don't know that I think that is true. And um, I think my biggest takeaway is a lot of gray area in terms of the discussion of character and steroids and what we expect from our heroes. Um, I believe it's in the trailer. It might not be. It's in at least one episode. Um, somebody said, you know, I can understand someone who needs something robbing a 7-Eleven, someone who's kind of down and out. What I can't understand is a billionaire robbing a 7-Eleven. And that's was sort of his metaphor for steroids. And I found that very interesting. And I think that's, that's kind of a tone I'd like. I hope people come away with in the podcast that some of these people took these drugs because everyone else was and they needed to keep their careers afloat. And they saw no other option because not only the stars, but also the league had just condoned this. And I think that's something that 
I hadn't really thought a ton about before doing this. And of course, if there is a hardline stance, then that has to apply to everyone. And yet we feel empathy for the guy trying to hang on to his dream of playing baseball and needs them for that little bit. And we don't have it for the person that we feel like is maybe preternaturally gifted to stay there and is then colluding and messing with that and making cloudy his talent that we would like to be able to appreciate without the questions. Right. Which... It's interesting that that's where you ended up. Did you think that that's where, when you started out and set out to do this podcast, did you have a thesis? You know, I had, a. I thought there was going to be some discussion of, I wanted to work through my feelings about the sort of character and morality questions of all of this, um, because I think that's all tied together with like, what are your feelings about the home run race and Mark McGuire and how do you make sense of this, all of this? Um, and I think that was the biggest part of sort of untangling all of that. I, I didn't know that I had a thesis, but I thought I might surprise myself with what I learned there. Um, and then I think it was just sort of dictated by the reporting from there. I think um, very early on, we talked to some people, my producer and I, who sort of steered us in that direction. Those conversations made us start thinking in that direction. So from, from a pretty early point, I would say that was part of the discussion. Um, one other thing that we were thinking about from the start was just sort of looking at the congressional hearings that sort of capped all this off in 2005. And like, why was the government so involved in this? It's kind of weird. If you think about it, we're like at war in Iraq and a bunch of bad stuff is happening and we're talking about steroids. And so that was something that we knew we wanted to explore. And I think it became a little more abstract in terms of just like, why did we all care so much about this um, as a discussion as well? Who are some of the people that you talked to throw out some names for people to look forward to? Yeah. Um, one of my favorite interviews was with Stan Conti, who I mentioned earlier, who was the Giants trainer for years, um, who is just really smart and really candid. Um, my favorite interview, though, I think of all is someone who you no one has ever heard of. His name is Jeremy Cummings, and he is a career minor leaguer who eventually made a decision to use steroids. I don't think I'm spoiling anything here. I think that's pretty clear from the start. Um, who was so extremely candid about the entire experience. And, um, really was probably the person who sort of upended my everything I thought I thought about steroids. Um, other than that, talked to some really great journalists, talked to a few other players, um, some more behind the scenes people, some politicians who were really involved in the hearings, um, a wide variety of people, some doctors. Um, we got a lot of people. Yeah. It's interesting. You talk about the minor league and I'm very, um, I'm, I'm intrigued to listen to later episodes because I have a very hard line stance on cheating in general. Um, but I do think that's because I'm a rule follower and I think everyone should follow the rules and then you should work your hardest and do your best. And then if you win, congratulations. And if you don't, you did your best and you worked your hardest and everybody had the same shake when the league itself isn't properly fixing the problem or maybe even intentionally overlooking the problem, then you have now changed it so that the rules aren't the same for everybody. And that if you do your best and work your hardest, you haven't necessarily lost because you weren't good enough. You might've lost because you didn't cheat. And that muddies it so much so that I can still, I think, judge the best who, who got even better for making that choice and knowing it was wrong and hiding it because they knew it was wrong. So therefore later can't try to spin it any other way, because if you know you're doing something wrong and then you hide it because you know it's wrong, then later you can't be like, well, I just felt like it was okay. But the idea then of it trickling down so that if you look around and you say, I'm the only one doing this right. And that's going to hurt only me and not the ones doing it wrong, man, that's so much tougher of a decision to make. Yeah. And when you're a minor leader making like 
the salaries are so incredibly paltry. I mean, it was like, I wish I could, I should have looked at the numbers before I came to talk to you, but I mean, not a living wage and only half the year. And you see guys who you came up with and all of a sudden they take steroids and they are so much better. And you are sitting there thinking, I need to like feed my family. It becomes a really tough decision. And um, when you just think about it in terms of Mark McGuire, Barry Bonds and Sammy Sosa, that's not how you're thinking about it. Yeah, that'll that'll be really interesting. And I love that that's kind of the direction that this ended up taking you because it is different than what we're so used to mining in terms of this demonization of the best, um, but understanding the trickle-down effects and the league's effects. Well, I'm excited to hear the rest of the episodes. Um, congrats on the podcast. And uh, I'd be interested if you hear from some of the people that are uh, involved in the stories that you're telling, although I wouldn't hold my breath uh, for, for most of them. <laughs> right. uh, before we let you go, you do have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Number one, your current career is canceled. You can't write or talk about sports. They don't exist. What do you do for a job instead? Interior designer. Oh, nice. That should be good <laughs> with the new place. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Uh, number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? After the Cubs won the World Series, I was in Wrigleyville and I was supposed to go out and take video for SI and I got trapped on Clark Street when they barricaded it in and I was lifted off my feet and swayed side to side and thought I was going to get trampled. Wow. <laughs> what an awesome, scariest moment that was during just straight up euphoria. <laughs> I did not get video, needless to say. <laughs> That's too bad. Uh, number three, you can be the best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it? Baseball. Uh, what current celebrity from TV or politics or music or whatever would you most like to be your best friend? AOC. Ooh, good one. She would be <laughs> so fun. I would love She'd to be real fun. pick her brain. Uh, number five, what's your biggest, mostly meaningless pet peeve? Oh gosh. Pet peeve. Pet peeve. People not listening to me. Does that happen often? Like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, but you know, some people I know who are they pretend like they're listening, but you know, they're not. <laughs> okay. I hope they listen to this and they feel guilty when they hear that <laughs> and they know it's them. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh, you know, I have a very, in French class in elementary school in like fourth grade. And I forget what actually happened, but I remember like running out of the French, the French room because I had said something like I didn't mean to say, like I said the wrong word and it sounded like I was like flirting with a boy that I didn't mean to be. And I don't remember anything about it, but that and the feeling of shame. Oh, that's great. Um, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Oh, I would like to be better at having reactions to things. It's a really weird thing to say, but I feel like I tend to overreact to things I see immediately. And then like 10 seconds later, I realize everything's fine. I would like to just realize things are fine for the first 10 seconds. Is it always in that direction or do you ever undersell and then realize things are not fine at all? And you definitely oh, no, freaking never. out. Always, never. No, always. I always freak out. <laughs> okay. So overreacting would be the, uh, yeah. the problem. Uh, number eight, any band alive or dead can play your next party. Who is it? I mean, probably just the Beatles. Good choice. Solid choice. Lots of hits. Yeah. Yeah. Um, number nine, what would you consider your biggest failure? Oh, man. My biggest failure is 
something sports related, I'm sure. Um, not being good at any sports but swimming. No sports <laughs> on land. All on land sports are failures of mine. Interesting. Do you think that's part of the interest in sports in general is wanting so badly to be involved, but you can't do it by playing. So you, so you observe and write. Potentially. Yeah. Um, I'm like real scrawny and, um, have never had the best hand eye coordination. So I was like put in the water at a very young age and that's the only thing I can do. So yeah, I think there is like a, I think I have a level of awe just about sports because of that. That probably permeates what I do. Number 10, what three individual words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Oh, okay. Um, kind and empathetic and helpful. Those are good ones. I like those. No, no, those, I mean, they're a little overlappy, but they're different enough. I just want um, people to like me. That's all I want. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's an admirable goal. Um, for sure. Uh, and then, uh, if you had to suggest someone for the podcast, anyone that you find interesting or has a great story, it could be completely unrelated to sports even. Oh, that's interesting. I would suggest, oh, that's really hard. <laughs> I'm like thinking like about people in the, I'm like Jeremy Cummings, my minor league friend. <laughs> Honestly, he's great. That's yeah, what I'm that thinking about right now. I'm in a, yeah. I'm in a steroid headspace. <laughs> That's my answer. All right, Jeremy Cummings. That would be an interesting <laughs> one for sure. Um, I'm sure after listening to your uh, to your episode with him, we'll have a little bit of more of an idea of him. And that conundrum, I think, will be such a fascinating part of this that I didn't anticipate heading in. Thanks so much for doing the interview and good luck with the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. So this is a place where I can rant about something that I'm angry about, rave about something great, tell you what to read, tell you what to listen to, share a good story. And this week, what's on my mind is one last shout out. Even though we're a few days past the end of Women's History Month, I will never pass up a chance for women to sing each other's praises. And former guest a couple weeks ago, Catherine Budig, had reached out to yoga teacher and body positivity advocate Jessamine Stanley, who you've no doubt seen in some national yoga ads and commercials, um, and asked Jessamine to do her shout out for the podcast. And Jessamine was out, didn't get the email in time, couldn't make the deadline, but so wanted to praise Catherine that she did it anyway. And who am I to turn that goodness down? So here's Jessamine Stanley. Catherine Budick completely changed my life. I'm not being hyperbolic. Like, when I first started practicing yoga at home, I started taking Catherine's classes on Yoga Glow, and she was the first teacher who I felt really spoke to me. And through her, through practicing with her, I have learned so much about myself. She has taught me so much about what it means to live the practice of yoga. And I just honestly thank God every day that she was born. And I, I think this is, I don't even know what else to say. So I'm just like, yeah, did I hit all the high points? Yeah. I am so grateful for her as a as a teacher, as a practitioner, as a as a liver of life and a, a person who loves. I'm grateful. Oh, I love it. Honestly, I wish I could do that for every guest that comes on because I love hearing people joyfully describe someone that they care about. It's such a nice feeling. And it's such a nice feeling to hear the way somebody else talks about you and values you. I'll consider doing it going forward. It's a little more work uh, for the guest, for me, for the person involved. I got to chase them down, get it back in time. But maybe every once in a while, I'll try to consider uh, throwing it back into the mix. It is quite lovely. 
You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain. Tell me some suggestions for guests. Give me some questions or dilemmas. Always go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate it. Review it. Five stars, please. And thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 